0: Hello and welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Witschak. I'm a PhD student at the University of Washington. This episode is a conversation between me and Victor Minaldo, who is Professor of Political Science at the UW. We discuss why we should be concerned about the decline in democratic quality across the globe and debate possible causes and especially focus on the challenge of populism. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Hello, Victor. So I've been told that when you grow up in the U.S., democracy is really drilled into you as an unquestionable ideal or good. I've personally not grown up in the U.S., so I can't really speak to that, but I think you have at least partly grown up here,
1: correct? Partly. That's a generous way to put it. You know, (laughs) my family moved away to uh, Latin America when we were, when I was five years old, but I returned every summer because my, a lot of my family was still here. And I think I drank some of the Kool Aid in terms of being imbued with the core values of democracy and the like. I have to say, being an American abroad for a big chunk of my childhood actually made me perhaps valued liberal democracy, which we'll define shortly, I bet, even more, I think, than if I had grown up in the United States. Partly that's because I would have spent my formative years in a dictatorship, a single-party dictatorship in Mexico.
0: Especially in the U.S., in the cultural psyche, dictatorship and authoritarianism are almost synonymous with the dark side, right? Um, if you watch Hollywood movies, this motif of, of the people rising up against tyrannical um, dictators of some kind. It's extremely common. I mean, obvious, I think we're both a little bit of Star Wars fans. But I mean, even in the movies like The Hunger Games or something like that, right? That's a very strong theme. Is there any reason to, to be so anti-authoritarianism? What's the problem? Why do authoritarian regimes underperform? And in what way relative to democratic countries?
1: Well, Barry Weingast, who was a mentor of mine at Stanford when I was a grad student, would tell us the winners write history and the winners write a history that flatters themselves. And the liberal democracies beat the fascist powers led by Germany and Japan in World War II and, and therefore had the privilege and opportunity to sing the praises of their regime type, which was liberal democracy, right? So the man in High Tower and Amazon, really campy, cheesy show i think poses the counterfactual what if the nazis had won and in that alternative reality i suppose we'd all be bending over backwards to say that authoritarianism is a great system stepping back and just being neutral social scientists about it not even political theorists that would say oh there are intrinsic things about democracy that are good mm. we can look at world history and and see that the track record of democracy is pretty successful when it comes to the things human beings tend to value. That would be economic development. That would be a social safety net, human rights, environmental outcomes like environmental stewardship, the quality of life in a lot of intangible ways, respect for human dignity, the ability to speak freely, to associate, to have a free media, if these are amenities we value. So if you look at the empirical record, I do think it is a slam dunk for the liberal democracies, at least, in terms of definitely outperforming the authoritarian regimes. Now, there have been episodes of very fast and miraculous economic growth among the Asian tigers especially, but not only re- relegated to them in the post-World War II era, countries like Singapore or South Korea under dictatorship before their transition in 1988, for example. But whether that is a caused by dictatorship is an open question, and whether one would want really fast economic growth and trade all the other good things off for that, if it is a product of a dictatorship, under certain conditions at least, that's a, another question. But at least on average... The record is quite clear that democracies are really good on a host of things we care about.
0: Can you speak a little bit more to those things that we care about? Is it really just economic development? Or what are other instrumental benefits of democracy?
1: Well, like I said, things like being able to organize and speak your mind. If we Mm -hmm. were to put a price tag on that, maybe it's priceless. There's there's no dollar value. Um, Things like the uh, environmental stewardship, as I said, there's clear evidence that after holding other factors constant, dictatorships are terrible for the environment. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union, for example, or China today are examples where environmental degradation, pollution, heavy metals, the Chernobyl nuclear meltdown, those are examples where the environment suffers greatly. Uh, And these are anecdotes, but if you look at the uh, empirical patterns uh, generally, These anecdotes say there's something there. There's a signal versus noise where dictatorships are bad. If you look at things like human rights, and Jamie Mayerfeld, a a professor here at UW, helps document the fact that liberal democracies tend to be much better at protecting human rights. And in the Southern Cone, for example, in South America, under military dictatorships in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s, the human rights records were atrocious, so much blood was spilled, a lot of innocent people died, people who spoke out for democracy and who try to exercise their freedom of conscience and assembly and speech. And China today, if you look at the way it treats the Uyghurs, it's the fact that it cracked down on pro-democracy movements and liberal movements in Hong Kong, the fact that it surveils its population and snuffs out any dissent, including using the death penalty against people who speak out. Again, these are anecdotes, but if you look empirically in general, there's something to these anecdotes in terms of democracy underperforming on on these dimensions. What do you think? Are there things that come to mind in terms of the instrumental benefits of democracy that I've left out?
0: I think that you're naming extremely important ones. I would point also to a book by, you mentioned Barry Weingast, a book by by Weingast, John Joseph Wallace, and Douglas North, who uh, I think the book is called Violence and Social Orders. And the point that they're making is that what they call open access orders or open access political systems, which in their definition come extremely close to liberal democracy, have institutions that inherently create better public policy, better being defined as closer aligned with the interests of the majority of the citizens. And they do so over time. So it's not just the case that they aggregate whatever the will of the majority is at any given point in time, but they honor maybe almost an intertemporal interest of the people, if you will.
1: You know, the thesis that they have, it's a very good book, by the way. It's in my canon of the top books published over the last, I guess, 11 years now. It was published in 2009. But the thesis is exactly as you say, that the incentives under democracy and the opportunities citizens are afforded in a democracy push politicians Almost the gravitational force in a democracy is for them to push politicians towards public goods that are in demand by citizens, infrastructure, education, as we were saying, environmental amenities, basic scientific research, things that are good for the majority and even good for the children of those folks currently living under democracy. And even before that, democracy also fosters welfare state capitalism that Democrats, uh, small d, democratically elected politicians, I mean, assign and enforce property rights. They enforce contracts in a, a more impartial way. They provide policies that reduce transaction costs and allow economic exchange to take place in, at larger scales and in a more sophisticated manner. They promote a more efficient use of capital and also push innovation forward. And if you think of education, it isn't only education in an instrumental way in terms of the skills you might learn uh, that would be valuable on a job market, but it's also civics education, the liberal arts uh, uh, education about history uh, and the humanities. I would say democracies outperform dictatorships on those counts. And the authors of that book argue that it's because the DNA of A liberal democracy, at least, is to nurture free speech, freedom of assembly, and for them, very importantly, the freedom to create long-lived organizations such as corporations, labor unions, political parties, even things like bowling leagues uh, that Robert Putnam talks about and other civic uh, organizations.
0: So what is it about democracy that creates these incentives that you've described? How does this work? What are the feedback loops? that allow this to happen, that force this to happen. You've described this as a gravitational pull or push. How does this work exactly?
1: Let me ask you, when you think of democracy or liberal democracy, let's say that, what are things that come to mind? And then we can think about the logic or mechanics. What are some things that you might come up with?
0: I think commonly we tend to talk about democracy and i mean even you and i just just did it that way right but i think what we really talk about when we u- use that phrase is liberal democracy right? and i think that's ultimately exactly what north wallace and winegast describe as an open access order because democracy fundamentally only refers to a specific mode of government which lies that the people rule through some form of yeah, preference aggregation, right? So it's, it's majority rule through voting. That's pretty much what democracy is. However, to give rise to all those institutions that you've described, you obviously need a lot more than just that. And I think here you can really not downplay the incredible importance of the influence of liberalism as an ideology. And I mean liberalism really as an ideology, just like fascism or socialism or conservatism, that are different ways of making sense of social reality. And liberalism has a very long and uh, complex history, but I would argue that there are certain basic tenets that inform most liberal democracies today. And I think the most basic one is that power must be constrained, political power must be shared. Or distributed in between different actors, because too much power in, in, in any one actor's hand is going to lead to outcomes that, that favor one group within society uh, unduly or, or overly. And this is paired with some form of constitutionalism or the German idea of rechtsstaat or the rule of law, which which sets down certain ways of organizing political contestation uh, and formalizes it. So you have periodic elections, for example, that then empower some sort of representative body, but that doesn't hold all the political power, right? There's some judicial oversight. There's an independent judiciary that uh, is capable of performing judicial review of uh, laws that are passed by parliament but also of executive actions so that would be whatever executive body is being put in place is still not able to implement whatever laws are being passed by either parliament or by itself but rather they still have to answer to some tertiary body that is being tasked with judicial oversight to make sure that the laws that are being passed the actions that are being taken are in line with the basic constitution So that means that in a liberal democracy, the people who elect representatives or in a presidential democracy elect a president do not rule unconstrainedly, right? They're not unconstrained. Rather, there are very real barriers to the powers that they can exercise. And some of them are informed by another basic tenet of liberalism, which is the idea that People, citizens, individuals have certain unalienable rights that are not God-given, but they're, yeah, they're inalienable, they're sort of organic, they come from you just by, by the virtue of you just being a person. Right? So they, they cannot be taken away from you, which then by extension also means that they cannot take and be taken away from you by the majority either. So that effectively, I would say, reduces the stakes of the political game by just saying certain solutions, certain decisions are off the table. So sure, liberal democracy means that the people rule in some way, but that does not mean that they're unconstrained in any way. Do you have anything to
1: add? Yeah, I think that's excellent. I would divide my addendum to what I'm going to say into two parts. The first would be how do we deduce institutions from what you said in terms Mm -hmm. of your definition and the spirit of, of democracy? What are the institutions and processes, the formal institutions, if you will, and also what are the informal institutions or cultural norms that reinforce liberal democracy? So let me start with what I think are some fundamental institutions and This is from the literature and political science. There's a pretty strong consensus around the idea that these institutions must be there for the democracy to be liberal and for it to function and uh, consolidate. So the first, as you mentioned, citizens must select leaders through elections, and those must be free and fair. And a big part of that is that incumbents should not be able to control the voting process or the vote counting process. There should be a separate agency or bureaucracy or... Some way of decentralizing the power so that the incumbents aren't sitting, let's say, in the presidential palace, counting the votes and finding ways to cheat so they inevitably end up with more votes than the opposition. Another thing you mentioned very eloquently is the constraints on the executive. And so there have to be constraints on executive authority and discretion. So that involves checks and balances. And even the elections themselves, if, they're, if they follow a reliable and predictable timetable, and they are institutionalized, that itself acts as a constraint on executive power. It creates accountability. Another thing is political parties have to be independent from the state. They can't be extensions of the state or funded by the state, or if they are funded, they would be funded equally. There'd be uh, an e- even playing ground or the ability to balance power between parties out. Alternation in office is important or at least the possibility that incumbent parties can lose elections. And that means opposition parties are competitive, or political parties in general are competitive, that the state and the incumbents that run the state aren't giving the parties they prefer or represent an unfair advantage. You mentioned individual rights and liberties. That makes a democracy a liberal democracy. That's where the threshold really, I think, is important in terms of are we now in a full-fledged liberal democracy that puts individuals at the heart of it, that depoliticizes rights yes. uh, and liberties. And finally, a free and vibrant media and, and an extension of that term, a more capacious one would be a free and vibrant civil society, including universities, yes. um, intellectuals, etc.
0: I think all of those institutions sort of grip into each other, right? They're they're interdependent, interrelated. And, I, and that's also very much true for the cultural institutions that you're going to describe in a second. I want to emphasize the importance of civil society, but also of relatively free markets, which are instrumental in enabling a realm that is potentially political, that is outside the purview of the state. I believe it's uh, Mussolini who described totalitarianism, which, which is the opposite of, of civil society, I suppose, as being. Everything being within the state and nothing outside the state. So the idea being that there cannot be anything that is outside of the purview of the state. So there cannot be any economic activity that is not controlled by the state. There cannot be any bowling league, as you described. There cannot be any political movements. There cannot be any labor organization. There cannot be any even a small collection of people who are really interested in gardening. That cannot be outside of the purview of the state that has to be organized through the state. Say what you will about uh, Milton Friedman, but I think in um, Capitalism and Freedom, there's one very memorable quote where he says, the main issue um, of totalitarian regimes or even regime, communist regimes that have state planning and therefore uh, there's no open access to the economy is that protesting against the regime is extremely complicated. Because it's virtually impossible to print the signs that you would hold up that would decry government action, right? Because all the printing shops are run by the government. Free access to, to economic property is is instrumental in like enabling political freedoms in that way.
1: Totally. There's a lot of commonsensical truth to that. Uh, another example would be, of course, governments have to regulate the economy, uh, provide public goods, reduce public bads. But in regulating the economy, if they can pick winners and losers by helping their friends, subsidizing their friends and punishing their enemies, then they might also give uh, licenses to operate television stations or the radio or newspapers to their friends in return for printing puff pieces or propaganda a very far bridge from controlling the economy to controlling it in ways that benefit your friends and allies to using those regulatory instruments to have folks that are beholden to you and then will do whatever it takes to make sure you remain in power, perhaps because their livelihood depends on it. And so they become accomplices to your uh, dictatorial rule at some point or your authoritarianism. To get back to the democratic norms, the North Wallace and Weingas book, and a lot of work by Barry Weingas before this, and also Adam Jaworski and James Fearon and other political economists, the first step in this idea that political culture matters for liberal democracy is just to think about the mechanics of what norms do, and then we can get to the content of the norms. The mechanics are that a consensus over democratic norms uh, regarding basic rights and the rules of the game, as you said, constitutionalism, allows citizens to coordinate and to potentially punish those politicians that step outside the norms and transgress against constitutional strictures or even some of the cultural norms that uphold democracy. So political or obedience to the norms are policed Uh, is policed by citizens and politicians who can use those norms as focal points in the language of game theory to coordinate and punish anyone who might defect from the consensus. Now that is the machinery. The content of the norms themselves That might vary from regime to regime in terms of maybe a liberal democracy like Japan will have different norms than one like England or the United States, but the basic ones that transcend cultural differences or even time periods are mutual tolerance and respect for different views, uh, dissent, uh, the opposition, forbearance, you brought this up. Uh, earlier, meaning that politicians or even the opposition won't use every arrow in their quiver. They'll be restrained and, and be guided by prudence, longer time horizons than just winning at all costs today. Another important norm is viewing those who disagree with you as the loyal opposition and not implacable enemies that should be vanquished or destroyed or, or illegitimate and don't have the right to compete in the political arena. Some of these ideas come from Levitsky and Ziblatt, Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt's book, How Democracies Die, where they summarize a lot of the literature on uh, the culture of democracy and what is called self-enforcing democracy. And the reason it's called self-enforcing democracy is this idea of the coordination, citizens coming together and... Uh, upholding the rules of the road in an extra-constitutional way, in a cultural way. The the Constitution itself is nourished and upheld by the culture. The last thing I'll say, again, speaking of North uh, Wallace and Weingast, their contribution in in that 2009 book is to say another norm of liberal democracy is a strong civic culture with what we've said now several times today, open access, free entry, the ability to form an organization, having respect for that organization, having legitimacy to express your thoughts, to compete, to form not only a corporation in the economic marketplace, but maybe a labor union or to form a political party or a nonprofit that advocates on behalf of a political objective or a social uh, value that you might have. So that it's itself would also be a norm, an informal one, that is part of the culture of liberal democracy.
0: If these systems are so solid and so impervious to a disruption, how do we explain recent woes uh, in different Western democracies?
1: Well, you know, that's where perhaps they're not so solid, first of all. So maybe these norms, they have a half-life or they might... Atrophy over time. So it could be the case that, like any capital that depreciates, if you don't offset that capital depreciation by investing in the norms, they might weaken to the point where liberal democracy is under threat, right? So I do wonder, what do you think? Is it necessarily automatic that a culture of democracy will mean that democracy endures,
0: First of all, I think it's a great metaphor to say that none of these things are going to just remain at the same strength if you don't tend to them, if you don't harness them, if you don't cultivate them in the same way. At different times, those norms might be put under different levels of stress. It's so all well and good to to practice forbearance and to be very tolerant of the opposition if the opposition is not all that far away from you politically, right? But it might become a lot harder if you fundamentally disagree on some new issues that have become politicized or that have come up in recent years, right? And then you have to figure out how how do we navigate this new terrain that we're in politically. It might create a lot of anxiety if you if you aren't sure that you can trust people who disagree with you fundamentally on new issues that have come up.
1: And also, just because you have a culture that ostensibly supports liberal democracy doesn't mean that it's uh, 100% given to you that that democracy will be fully consolidated and not weaken over time, right? Exactly.
0: Another element that is uh, really important in North Wallace and Weingast is that open access orders or liberal democracies are not free of conflict. That's not the argument. The idea is not that these societies are completely harmonious and will never experience any political conflict, but rather that they channel conflict in specific directions, in more peaceful directions, in more productive conversations. Yeah, that may be more or less successful at different points in time, right? And I think it's similar to a market process where adaptations over time can be quite painful, right? And there might be a lot of lag in between. The provision of political solutions to new problems, and they might create a lot of friction in the meantime. And often it's really just necessary for yeah, political entrepreneurs to, to roll up their sleeves and get in the game and change the rhetoric around certain issues, create new political movements, create new political parties, and to make sure that both cultural norms are respected, that social norms are adhered to, but also maybe create new institutions to make sure that old ideals can actually be uh, realized.
1: Yes, those are excellent points. Another topic that's important in the North Wallace and Wine Gas book is reducing the stakes yeah. of politics. Reducing what's at stake by having fundamental rights and freedoms upheld because there's a strong consensus around that and they're embedded in the Constitution. And as you alluded to before, upheld by the judiciary, but also respected by the other branches of government that divide their power between themselves. So finding ways to reduce the temperature when the temperature gets high, I think is important. And maybe some of the strategies you point to, some innovations in the institutions or political party platforms or what have you, that is exactly the way to douse a fever or to channel democracy in a more constructive uh, direction if it's under duress, where there's new players or ideas or or ways of doing things, uh, not to jettison the fundamental rights, but to reinforce them by allowing them maybe to stretch a little uh, without necessarily breaking what they should be about, which is, as we said, the fundamental tenets of mutual tolerance, respect, forbearance, et cetera.
0: Scholars of political science and uh, commentators, journalists, pundits, have, have really put the spotlight on the issue of populism. Yeah there there are different uh, political movements in different democracies across the globe that people or yeah commentators are feeling that democracy may be under threat or liberal democracy may be under threat are there any specific examples you would like to discuss
1: well I'll bring some up and then see if your list is longer than mine okay Uh, Venezuela comes to mind uh, starting in 1998 with the election of Hugo Chavez and then Mm -hmm. succeeded by Nicolas Maduro, uh, where we go from liberal democracy, one that had been pretty well consolidated beginning in 1959, uh, thereabouts, but then at this point is completely dead and we're in an authoritarian regime circa 2020. Turkey under Erdogan, uh, for sure, when he... uh, Rises to Power in 2002 is the beginning of the backsliding process, in a sense, and now there's a lot of power consolidated in, in his hands, and the checks and balances that were there have been gutted, the culture of restraint has been weakened, the opposition is on the ropes, and freedom is a harm not only politically, but economically as well, the ability of, of the open access order to work the way we've described it. Hungary under Viktor Orban is another pretty obvious example where checks and balances have been gutted. The court has been packed with his supporters. Uh, The media has been demonized and weakened. And freedom of association and speech is on the ropes as well. Poland is another example I know less about, but from what I understand, it has followed the Orban playbook uh, with a right-wing movement and uh, political party. Do you know the name of that party?
0: Law and Justice.
1: Another example I'm going to add, but I'm not actually, and I hope you'll indulge me. I don't think we want to talk about it Mm -hmm. because we don't have any special insight into what's happening here any more than any listener. But regrettably, unfortunately, and with great sadness, I add the United States to this list in the most surprising way. I would have never thought uh, I would say Venezuela, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, and the U.S. in the same sentence. regarding the death of liberal democracy or at least the challenges it faces but what's
0: interesting though is to create some sort of synthetic version of all of those cases and Mm -hmm. say what is the general playbook by which these movements have turned away from liberal democracy so i think we can all agree Or yeah, it's 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 a universal agreement among political scientists as well as journalists and other observers that all of those regimes have experienced a turn away from liberal democracy in obviously very varying extents. I think maybe Venezuela and Turkey have been the most dramatic examples, probably Venezuela, the most uh, dramatic example. What exactly happens or happened in these regimes?
1: We'll go through that in a second, but what about defining populism first? Do you think we should take a stab at that and then
0: discuss
1: our synthetic... uh... Yeah,
0: I would say that, okay, first of all, I think it's important to point out that these recent challenges to liberal democracy have generally been summarized as a populist revolt, populism that is on the rise. That is the big headline that you see. Then the question obviously needs to be asked, what is populism? And in what way is it antithetical to, to what we have described as liberal democracy? When I'm defining populism, I'm drawing extremely heavy on uh, Kaz Mudde, who is a political scientist and a scholar of populism. And the defining feature of all populisms, according to, to Mudde, is that it divides society into clean groups that are in conflict with each, with each other. And those groups are the pure or virtuous people, the common people, and they're in conflict with corrupt and alien elites. And you see that kind of rhetoric, in, it's usually some sort of version of it's rural, common, virtuous people that are being exploited by urban, metropolitan, progressive elites, something along those lines, that's usually the rhetoric.
1: Well, first, let me just take what you just said and say, actually, some historical episodes of populism in Latin America, some cases I'm familiar with, take what you said and flip it on its head, and it's actually the rural, landowning, feudal, -feudal semi-feudal elites who are attacked by new urban coalitions represented by the pure labor movements and uh, the real workers. So it's funny how It could be rural versus urban, but sometimes the bad guys, so to say, are are rural folks who are the elite and the urban proletariat, if you will, to use a Marxist term, are the pure people that are seeking to undo the yoke of their oppressors in the countryside. But, But let me discuss other elements of populism. I think you're right on. There's other things, though, to think about as well. It's the idea that the institutions behind liberal democracy and welfare state capitalism, those twin institutions that are the pillars of open access orders, that those institutions and the experts who help those institutions function should be ignored in favor of the pure, unadulterated will of the people. Exactly. And that the will of the people is represented by a charismatic leader that happens to have a better sense of what the people want or a a better vision, or maybe is courageous enough to tell the truth about how corrupt the system is. And another thing, another element, pluralism and compromise, which are embedded in the formal institutions, but even more importantly, in the culture around liberal democracy. These things are unimportant if anything, they're shams. Exactly. used by the corrupt elites to hold the people down. And that pluralism and compromise are not important because if you've created a society that can be divided into the good guys and their implacable enemies, yeah. then why um, cooperate? Exactly. Why compromise with them? They're tainted and, and uh, they're beyond being redeemed. The other thing I'll say about pluralism is that it might start out as a charismatic leader let's say, representing the rural folk who are the true representatives of the nation. But uh, again, in this fictional example, the urban um, uh, groups might react by also being populist and by also uh, demonizing their fellow country people and saying, well, forget about pluralism and compromise. They're not playing by the rules and neither should we. So you can get a spiral where populism leads to more populism and might be a a sliding uh, scale towards authoritarianism. And the inhibitions that were the glue that held democracy together are no longer there from any side.
0: To summarize, populism understands politics as a confrontation between the people and elites. And those are two homogeneous groups. Populists argue that democratic uh, politics should be an expression of the will of the people as you said so that means that by extension all these liberal institutions in exactly the same way that you said liberal institutions that aren't popularly elected are not legitimate because they're not a direct expression of the will of the people pluralism as you say is intimately linked to the liberal institutions that we described earlier, because pluralism has a completely different vision of society and politics than populism does. Pluralism asserts that society is much more complicated than just class or nation, or in the case of populists, the people. Society is compromised of of individuals that are part of different groups at different times, that have heterogeneous interests, and there's a lot of different ones of them. And that's why it's so important in liberal democracy to afford all citizens civil and political liberties. But it's also so important, therefore, to create space for people to organize themselves, right? Which is why civil society is so important. Well, free markets are so important. Well, also religious liberty is so important, right? Because you afford all these different plural, Right, plural, as in like there is a lot of them. Right, there's different ones of them. Uh, all these different groups space to create rules for themselves. Right, that's why you disperse power. You do not concentrate it because when you concentrate power, you're going to have some struggle that creates situation in which there is some small majority that gets to impose their will on the minority. Yeah, so that is what liberal democracy sees, seeks to avoid.
1: I think that's correct. In fact. I think it was Theodore Lowy, a political scientist from the 20s or 30s, if I'm not mistaken, or it could be the 60s. I'm not so good at the genealogy of these ideas, I'll be honest. But I think his thesis might be that pluralism itself is an ideology. And it's anti-utopian. There's no end goal in sight where you vanquish those that disagree with you or where you end all conflict. Uh, In a complicated modern society composed of millions of strangers who... Yeah will never come to know each other where there are regional differences with a sophisticated economy with perhaps global value chains and different sectors and the dynamics of creative destruction, a lot of change and volatility and um, different races or ethnicities, religious people of different religious affiliations, uh, people with different interests and hobbies and uh, life perspectives. You're never going to get agreement and you're always going to need compromise, and you're exactly. always going to accept conflict as a way of life as essential to democracy. It's about having rules of the road that can tame the conflict, process it, channel it towards constructive political coalitions where compromise is important. That is definitely an important element. And to think of our synthetic example, now let's talk about what went on in Venezuela, uh, before Venezuela, Peru, and Argentina. Argentina under Juan Perón. In Peru, it would have been Alberto Fujimori. In Venezuela, as I said, Hugo Chavez, and then Nicolas Maduro. In Turkey, Hungary, Poland, Uh, one could even say the Philippines, and India uh, Mm -hmm. today. What's going on? The courts are an important aspect, the media and intellectuals. Populists love to go after them, to demonize them and to challenge their legitimacy and their ability to express their opinions or to dissent. Uh, so not only do they go after the electoral process or, uh, against, uh, the so-called economic elite or political players that they believe are corrupt and happen to disagree with them, but it is folks like judges and folks that aren't elected, but that have a important role to play and a status in society where they have respect and authority, um, can you think of other examples? Judges, the media, intellectuals—what are we missing here? Electoral uh, authorities, um.
0: judges are, are and um, constitutional courts are extremely important. And just, I think, um, yeah, political procedure, I think, is a, often a uh, target. But I so would also say,
1: sorry, bureaucrats would be included. Exactly,
0: right? Just yeah. the 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 rules of the game. The budgets, things like that, right, right. say, um, right. balanced budgets, ideas of that kind, but it's also things like independent central banks, mm-hmm. it's um, adherence to certain international contracts or international law, for example, that might constrain national governments, that's an extremely salient issue in the context of the European Union. Where what countries a lot of...
1: are you thinking of? Sorry? What countries have been pushing against that would be this Biorban in Hungary and in Poland? Yeah, and very strongly.
0: Justice. I think especially the Polish Law and Justice Party has politicized antipathy towards the European Union, which is seen as a German-led empire of sorts that is imposing its sort of liberal progressive views on uh, Polish citizens without their consent effectively. And it, that, that is rhetoric that is not just um, propagated by Law and Justice in Poland, Um, They just happen to be in government. This is a line of argumentation that is extremely common for European populist parties. A very popular example would be UKIP, the the Brexit party. So I think the the general rhetoric of populists in the 21st century has been to argue that too many issues have been depoliticized that should be repoliticized in some Mm -hmm. way, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of decisions have been taken out of the hands of the people. And into the hands of unelected bureaucrats like central bankers or, or judges. The people should make decisions for themselves and they should not be constrained by, by unelected institutions of any kind. That also explains the affinity to plebiscites to say we have to uh, make direct democracy a more um, common feature of, of modern democracy. So, in that way, the populist challenge is not explicitly anti-democratic, if anything, populism has the guise, at least, of pure democracy, right, of direct democracy, of saying the people have to decide.
1: Well, now that you have broadened the group of targets that are demonized, I can think of investigators, you know, anyone who's an investigator or worries about corruption or due process. Uh, I can think of civil society organizations that happen Mm -hmm. to disagree with the incumbents or the populace, Mm -hmm. Uh, protesters who are on the other side of an issue, not only government officials, but even former government officials who are speaking out of conscience or patriotism or duty.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So it actually can become everybody who's not with you, right? If you're not with me, you're you're against me kind of idea, right? Um, It can spread like a prairie fire, uh, and quickly actually devolve into authoritarianism, in a sense. Uh, anyone who's not defined as part of the pure people is exactly. is an enemy of the state or or of
0: our group. If you disagree with those who claim to represent the pure people, you're by definition not part of the people, right? So that, that means that you're then politically disqualified, effectively.
1: Well, what worries me then about the populist moment is that There's a fine line between the will of the people and so-called pure democracy and authoritarianism, ironically, right? And I can think of elections as a key fulcrum here, yes. where politicians and citizens must respect the verdict at the polls if you're going to have democracy beyond just one election. That means incumbents don't abuse their power to persecute their opponents, which in populist regimes seems not to be a norm that's upheld. Incumbents put control of government on the line by holding free and fair elections and respecting the results. And on the other side of it, as we said, there could be a cycle of attack and counterattack. The losers of an election wait their chance to win office instead of using the threat of violence to take power or holding out recognition if the incumbent happens to win re-election. And the majority on one issue doesn't attack the minority on that issue or, or seek an ultimate victory. The minority does not act as a spoiler or use extra political means like violence. And that's where my fear is, if we think of our synthetic case with uh, Argentina, Peru, Venezuela, Turkey, Poland, India, uh, the Philippines, and and other historical examples as well, authoritarianism is always lurking in the background.
0: The problem is really that an election that empowers always empowers a majority of some kind right, let's say the majority elects Hugo Chavez in 1999, I believe, right? 98. 98, sorry. Some electoral majority does elect this person. And the reason why we noted earlier the minority is able to and willing to accept defeat in a liberal democracy is because their fundamental political rights are guaranteed, ideally, in a liberal democracy. So in this situation, the majority leader, let's say, right, is empowered to make certain political decisions, but is not empowered to make other political decisions. Right? He's constitutionally bound to respect the rights of the minority. And that enables the minority to say, OK, you know, this is your turn. You get to implement your policies. But we know that certain things are off limits. And that's why we are willing to accept this. Now the issue is that once a majority is in power that majority theoretically at the very least has the opportunity to redefine the rules of the game in some way. You mentioned that it's extremely important and instrumental that there is a broad culture of respecting rights of the minority of res- of, of upholding all those liberal institutions that we discussed because if that culture is gone and the majority that is in power decides to redefine the rules of the game, it ultimately is a question of, of violence. Who, who will be uh, able to effectively do and push through their will? Would you, would you disagree? Is there anything else that keeps the majority to redefine the rules at that stage? Is it just culture? Is there, is there any other backstop?
1: Well, that, there is the tendency that we might be flirting with here to reach for the extremes in every case and to reach for the extreme examples and hyperbolize Mm -hmm. when there could be the soft middle where the democracy becomes less liberal, but it doesn't necessarily backslide into full-blown authoritarianism. And that might be a situation where the minorities' rights are threatened, or let's just call them the opposition for now, but they don't necessarily have the ability to fight back or they stand down. And then you have this husk of a democracy or a, a light bulb that's half on, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's fading, but it's still on and it gives you enough light. So there's elections and there are basic rights, and, but they're not very strong anymore. And the opposition isn't on an equal playing ground. And the culture has atrophied where sometimes violence is condoned and could be a tool used. So I, again, I go back to Latin American examples that I, I know pretty well, um, where you have a liberal democracy or oh, that's a halfway house between a liberal democracy and a straight-up dictatorship. And a lot of the promise of democracy then is lost in terms of the instrumental benefits we, we spoke about because the accountability is not there anymore. Civil society is weak, markets aren't strong anymore because it's become a crony capitalist system where winners and losers are a product of um, politicized regulation. And so it's the worst of all worlds. You've got the worst parts of democracy, which is the tyranny of the majority without the rule of law and accountability, without equal rights and due process. And you've got terrible outcomes that approach what you get in dictatorship. But maybe without, at least like in the Middle Eastern monarchies, the ones that are stable and functional, uh, good governance, where you have long time horizons, and at least I can think of the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, I can think of Oman, uh, I can think of Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, so even Saudi Arabia yes. for all its faults and, and serious violations of human rights, where... At least the monarch has some semblance of the common weal and what's good for for uh, her or or his society in mind. That is also an option, and that can go on for a long time, uh, where an illiberal democracy just sustains itself and is not put out of its own misery. It's in a holding pattern, so to speak.
0: And is this only an issue for the minority? It seems that well, if if say I'm a part of the majority in in some loosely defined term, right and I vote for whoever it is that is then in power and enacts a lot of these policies that you're describing. Well, but I mean, it, isn't in some way this kind of what I wanted? Sure, this might be bad for the minority, but who, who cares if I'm in the majority? Like, why is this something that I should be concerned with as a part of the majority who elects such a person?
1: Well, out of self-interest, the problem when you throw the rules of the game out is that you create vulnerabilities and unpredictability that can back come back to haunt you. Uh, Let me give you an example from the drug wars in Colombia and Mexico. I know the Mexican one's better because, not because of my research, but just living there for a while and having family there. There's honor among thieves, and there are certain rules that guide the behavior of even the Cosa Nostra in New York or Italy, to go back to the origins of the mob. But over time, some of those rules have been relaxed. And in Mexico, among drug lords, There were rules where you didn't go after each other's family, or you didn't go after the the capos, the people at the head of the organizations. There was mutual deterrence, mutually assured destruction, if you will. Uh, Perhaps that was the logic of forbearance and, and mutual tolerance, but there were certain rules. And beginning in the late 80s, 90s, and definitely now in the 2000s, all bets are off. And there is a feral struggle for power uh, and anarchy where you go after family members, the heads of organizations, you use torture and brutality to cow others into standing down or to take their turf and to take their rents from the drug uh, war. And you enlist every weapon in the arsenal, including sabotage, terrorism, kidnapping, and as I said, torture and death mm. and cruelty beyond our ability to even understand. Uh, decapitation on a good day. I don't even want to go through some of this stuff. And the record is out there. It's not like I have special insights into this. Um, anyone who watches Narcos uh, on Netflix would have uh, be privy to some of the stuff I'm speaking of. So in politics, that could look like violence, terrorism, political assassination, torture. And again, we're slipping into authoritarianism, but It could even be that we're in a liberal democracy where these things happen at a low ebb. And it doesn't have to be a full-fledged civil war, but it could be just the threat of violence and terror. And that's not a way you want to live your life. And if you're in the majority, maybe there were better ways for you to get your way, which is to just persuade people, including folks in the opposition, that you had a better political vision and that maybe you should have more power without threatening the rules of the road in the minority, in the opposition?
0: There are several reasons to believe that in a situation in which the majority throws out the rules of the game, public policy will deteriorate in, along the lines or in the ways that you describe here. I think further, the beauty or the power of liberal democracy or open access orders, as described by North, Wallace, and Weingast, are that they can course correct over time. Um, I would recommend reading also uh, public choice literature uh, scholars. For example, uh, there's a great book called uh, Choosing in Groups by Munger and Munger, who described that if the goal of politics is, or of, of politics in the context of a democracy, is to aggregate the will of the majority, which is the declared goal of populists, then it, it is not sufficient to vote once, have someone empowered, and then have that person do whatever they want. Because the issue that arises is that if you have complete power over agenda setting, i.e., you Uh, reduce the liberties of of the media, right? You can, uh, to some extent, guide what they talk about, what they say is important, what isn't important, what they do report on, what they don't report on. You get to, in some way, define what people evaluate your performance on. So that reduces the liberty of any future election, even if we say we're going to have future elections. Further, if you empower the executive to be uh, less constrained by parliamentary oversight, for example. You will have less recourse to challenge whatever decisions are being made by the executive. So, if the executive decides to change the way that you elect leaders in the future, who are you going to call? There's less recourse through formalized, institutionalized systems that you have once you have empowered one political actor that gets to define or redefine the rules of the game, however slightly or slowly, as you describe, right, this might not be a huge push at one point in time, but it might be a slow process over time that reduces your ability as um, a potential minority or position in the future, because your position might change over time, might reduce your ability to influence or have recourse on what the executive is doing. So if I say as the executive, um, I think we're not going to vote this time around, what are you going to do, right? If I've gotten rid of all these other um, institutionalized forms of recourse that you might have, right? If I say, um, I think I'm going to replace all administration officials by cronies, which is, I believe, one move that Chavez did at some point to completely restaff the, the bureaucracy. So you may have some control over who gets elected into the executive realm. But if I have completely changed everyone who gets to actually implement whatever policies are being meant by, uh, being implemented by the executive, I'm going to have tremendous power over political reality at the end of the day. So I think, Definitely. So I think there is incredible instrumental value in being able to course correct over time that liberal democracy has that any other form of closed access order or any order that is not allowing you to course correct in the same way doesn't have
1: right you know this is a good segue to economic populism if how political populism always seems to go along with economic populism and how economic populism reinforces political populism in a vicious circle. And it's funny how professed rightists, leftists, and centrists that are populists tend to reach out for the same economic playbook Mm -hmm. uh, and enact policies that look incredibly similar despite supposed ideological differences in the economic sphere. And so the ingredients of the uh, economic populism playbook, and this is a paper that I uh, co-authored with Beatriz Mahistro in our UW political science program and one of the members of the Political Economy Forum. We argue that what they share in common, populists uh, share in common when it comes to the economy, are quick results for their supporters based on distorting the economy and redistributing to their supporters. If we think of folks like Perón in Argentina or Chávez, In Venezuela, expropriation of the wealthy corporations and banks, but not just any of these firms or or players, but especially their political enemies, something actually that Putin and Russia did right after being elected in 1999 after Yeltsin left office. Trade protectionism is one of the essential elements because that gives you the ability to pick winners and losers, and those winners are domestic players. Uh, where they might have not to have to compete with foreign companies anymore because they're under the protective umbrella of tariffs on imports. Sharing rents with the insiders at the expense of consumers, uh, uh, taxpayers, and the firms and sectors that are outside of that coalition, that populist coalition, that's another essential ingredient. Using regulation to punish outsiders, using things like the antitrust authorities, or using regulation of the financial markets, or environmental regulation even, to help your friends and punish your enemies. Directing credit or channeling uh, loans to your friends, that's definitely one of the tried and true instruments of uh, economic policy under a populist regime. Another thing when it comes to macroeconomics and monetary policy is to Monetize huge deficits. Again, this is about myopia and short-term thinking where you're rewarding your friends as quickly as you can to consolidate power. And so you might run up huge budget deficits that you can't cover with normal sovereign uh, credit uh, by tapping international bond markets for uh, your government debt. And you might resort to money printing to address those budget deficits and inflation might get out of control. Other things to pick winners uh, in general, in terms of a capitalist economy that you see populists of all stripes indulge in are high barriers to entry and subsidizing not only credit, as I mentioned, but land, labor, foreign exchange, and using foreign ownership uh, restrictions as well to punish enemies and reward friends. And it's funny how You handpick the winners and all the regulations that are there normally for the entire economy are magnified to go after your rivals or the opposition or folks that are not in in the coalition. So you might, under the guise of improving working conditions or health and safety or the environment, have them operate under onerous restrictions that are incredibly difficult for them and don't allow them to compete in the marketplace. Or... um, taxation that is irregular and, and targeted after certain companies, fines, requirements to obtain special licenses, uh, sky-high borrowing costs, or just a climate of fear, intimidation, uncertainty about the goalpost shifting and regulation being different if you're not in that coalition.
0: The really important point is that, and you're, you're stressing that as well, is that economic populism reinforces the political aspect as well, right? You're creating... Uh, You're rewarding your cronies, sure, but you also create political dependencies of all those people on you after the fact. Another uh, paper here to recommend is John Joseph Wallace's The Concept of Systematic Corruption in American History, where he outlines that the uh, founding fathers of the US or the drafters of the US Constitution were primarily concerned with exactly this process where political representatives distort economic policy in a way not to reward their friends, but to create political cronies that then are dependent on them remaining in power and thus distorting the political process. It would be great if we could end on an actual example that you could talk through.
1: That is perfect segue to Argentina. The rise of Juan Perón during the late forties and eventually reaching office in the 1950s, he was a former general who did win in elections, in a landslide, but then used the so-called will of the people or the fact that he had won with such a mandate, so to speak, to gut democratic institutions, getting rid of checks and balances, uh, packing the courts, jettisoning the liberal democratic uh, constitution that Argentina had had since the 19th century. And that was very much a reflection of the American constitution of 1787. He's able to basically consolidate power, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, and change the constitution and the laws so that he can put together a coalition of, uh, in this case, domestic industrialists and unionized workers. And granted, these folks had been on the outs during the Argentine period in which landlords in the countryside, those folks in the cattle industry or that grew wheat and other cash crops were uh, had a lot of political power, if not hegemony. But I guess the solution to that problem in terms of populism was terrible for the country and even for the members of that coalition, of the Populist Coalition themselves, because in the short run, even though Peron is able to boost real wages for skilled and unskilled workers, actually by 35% in real terms uh, in 10 years, really protect domestic industry through subsidies, um, through uh, subsidized credit, through uh, discouraging foreign direct investment, and by hammering agricultural exports with taxes, uh, having dual exchange rates where industrialists could import machinery and other inputs to the manufacturing process at very uh, low costs. Uh, In fact, um, below uh, where the interest rates they uh, paid on the loans that they used to finance some of this stuff in real terms was uh, actually uh, negative. Doing all these things uh, and macroeconomic policies that involve valuation of the currency, a default on Argentina's sovereign debt, and hyperinflation in terms of running up huge budget deficits and, and printing money to pay for it. This eventually led to the emisceration of the workers themselves into higher unemployment than we started with in Argentina. And the real wages of skilled and unskilled workers eventually atrophied. Because what happened is that populism created the seeds of its own perpetuation where governments after Perón, he was displaced in a coup in 1995, turned to more uh, inflationary uh, monetary policy, turned to corruption, continually defaulted on Argentina's debt, kept returning to devaluation of the currency to get them out of short-term jams, and destroyed the productive base of the economy. Where productive uh, workers and uh, enhancements in productivity were no longer rewarded, what was rewarded was being on the inside, and gaining the ear of the president or the military junta that could give you subsidized uh, subsidies, tariffs, regulations that help you, or or regulations that hurt your enemies or the agricultural sector, et cetera, et cetera. And Argentina goes from being one of the uh, the wealthiest countries in the world, uh, in let's say around 1915, to being a, one of the poorer countries in Latin America, not even in the top uh, five any longer. And creating, as you said, a coalition of industrialists and labor unions that were beholden to the good graces or, or the favors of the populace in power. And instead of competing on the international, in the international market, they were in this very distorted, protected domestic market, where you competed based on cronyism rather than good ideas, innovation, or having products that were lower price or or higher quality. Uh, Argentine consumers have suffered, Argentine workers, Argentine firms uh, have suffered because eventually they were cut off from world markets and uh, they lost their ability to just do the normal things that firms do, which is to generate enough profits to stay in business and be solvent. So Argentina, in a sense, I think is a canary in the coal mine for anybody that thinks populism is good for the economy or for making a country great again. Um, In fact, Argentina became a basket case uh, in terms of its place in the world economy and in terms of uh, the deterioration of living standards for those at the bottom, middle, and even those at the top, but also in terms of the relative distribution of income, assets, and opportunities. Inequality is worse than it ever has been. So that's a a warning, I suppose.
0: It really is. Thank you very much, Victor. Um, Maybe in what time frame did this happen in in Argentina?
1: The late 1940s, and it continues today with the latest default last year on Argentina's sovereign debt. And we have inflation again rearing its ugly head, uh, uh, a deep recession uh, exacerbated by COVID, but that uh, preceded it and uh, other macroeconomic factors that are not sustainable when it comes to the way that country is being run with balance of payments problems and and the like. Uh, uh, Some of the flirting with populism and, and fears about autocratic backsliding, that might be a healthy part of a liberal democracy. if what it does is it reminds us of our core values. And this experiment shows us that experiments are fine. They're part of democracy, but Getting rid of democracy shouldn't be part of that experiment uh, because then room for experimentation under democracy might be gone and, and experimentation under dictatorship is not something we want to ever experience. Uh, it doesn't look good and it doesn't feel good. It's not good for anybody, including the dictators who never really end up uh, the way they think they will, uh, sometimes with a bullet to the head or in a prison cell or with half their family uh, in jail.
0: Thank you so much, Victor.
1: Thanks, Dick. That was great.